Welcome back to Behold the Lion. We're continuing our series in the Nicene Creed. Wow. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's, that's Rory and Joel here. Not Rory the Lion, incidentally, but, you know. Nope. Oh, man. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, Double okay. feature? Yeah. We've got Columbia's mascot on our podcast to talk about the representation of lions throughout Scripture. But, oh. Yeah. That might Behold be an interesting... the Lion of Judah. Interesting topical study, but today, not our topic for today. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground so far in the Creed. There's a lot to dig into, of course. And we've talked about the work of Christ. We've talked about uh, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And today we'll talk about an aspect of Christ's er- earthly work, I suppose. Well, it's sort of a transitional phase, I guess, but uh, that that is somewhat overlooked, at least in my experience. I mean, with the we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, and there are specific days for the Ascension, I believe, but uh, not most Protestant circles don't actually do too much on that. Uh, so that's something we can talk about. Let's talk about this, this section of the Creed. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He ascended, he went up into heaven, and is now with, with his Father, with God. Okay, so here's my question to you guys. Uh, we've talked about Christ, uh, we've read the Gospels, we've seen that he uh, lived, that he died, and that he rose again, and that we see all those things as historically grounded, right? Where is where is he now, and what's he up to? As in, um, where is he now, as in, where is he now at the time of the Ascension, or where is he now, as in, like, I mean, time is very difficult, uh, where Christ is. Uh, at present, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, right, We well, we profess, right? and is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? From there, he reigns. Um, And it's interesting the way that this is immediately following the crucifixion, right? We have this nonviolent victim of cruel uh, empirical justice now raised up um, and seated at the right hand of God, ruling as a king. Um, And in some ways, it's the perfect balance of the two, right? I mean, who else would you rather have be a a king with absolute power than someone who was brutally treated by an empire, right? He knows firsthand um, exactly how terrible power can can be, right? And and the distorting effect it can have. And uh, I think when thinking about the ascension, we should also think back to the initial incarnation where... Just to reference John 1, verse 18, that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And then you have, um, you see it in Philippians, talking about how Christ humbled himself to take the form of a servant. Uh, And so there is this sense of restoration, where there's the incarnation, the humiliation of the Son of God, to condescend, to be incarnate as a man, to live among us, that there's a sense in which he, uh, and then his ascension is that the return to his Father, an ultimate glorification of both him, but also a full glorification of his human nature. Um, so, which obviously there's a difference there from prior to the incarnation. It's, I think those two events, um, looking at them, like there's very obviously parallels, right? Incarnation, Mm -hmm. ascension. It's almost like the the big divine breath of Christ's life, right? He comes down, goes back up. It's just this natural, um, you know, breath of divinity. Um, it also fully completes his mission and, and, and also 
our own destinies, right? That Christ came down from heaven um, so that we might go up with him again at the end. Right. Okay. So I'm getting this picture of, you know, kind of a completion of his work, kind of a, uh, you know, when he descended, so to speak, now he ascends, he goes up. That's what ascension literally means. Um, Yeah. And I mean, the in terms of when did this happen how did like the details of the event where do we see this going on there's a few different accounts of of the ascension aren't there um i think the most detailed one might be in acts but yes uh, yeah yeah luke really loves the ascension yeah he writes about it both in his gospel and in acts um yeah so what goes on there what so i could just read the passage at the beginning of acts so acts chapter 1 verses 6 through 11 Um, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So there's also that promise of return and also the coming promise of the Holy Spirit coming down in Pentecost, which you which jesus promises in the gospel of john as well of where i will send a com- comforter and i can't i have to go so that the comforter can come and and sometimes um we 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 forget that the holy spirit you know is among us and with us right sometimes we focus too much like we, you see this all the time right when we talk about oh man it would have been great to be alive during christ's ministry right? And with him. And of course, that's true. Of course, that's true. But Christ himself says, right, in, in the gospel, it would, it is good for me to go so that the Holy Spirit can be with you, that somehow this gift is greater is the wrong word, but, but just as uh, beautiful and powerful. And we often like forget that. Um, yeah, right. That, that was the question I wanted to pose to you guys, just echoing the question the disciples raise here. Uh, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They remember what we've seen uh, throughout Christ's ministry, throughout his life, that this is, they've been expecting him to restore the kingdom to Israel ever since they, they met him, essentially, ever since they became convinced that he's the Messiah. And then they see him get killed, and the, that, that expectation is crushed. And then he rises again. So, you know, they're probably full of hope now. <laughs> and now finally, you know, okay, you know, you did all this kind of undercover ministry that ended in your death. And now are you finally going to restore the ministry to Israel? And no, you say you're going you're gonna to leave. And that was going to be my question. Um, wouldn't it have made sense in some way? Wouldn't it have been more convincing if Christ... Uh, it would have been, let's just put it this way, it would have been a very powerful apologetic for Christianity if Christ were still walking around um, <laughs> today. If, the, if his reign on earth was fully established today, which um, which obviously the apostles wanted. Right. Please, like, is this going to be the day of your power? Right. And so to continue the discussion, I have a couple other passages to read. Um, one is Matthew 26 when Jesus is standing before the high priests, 
um, prior to his passion. And uh, yes, they, um, when the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death and they bring false witnesses before him um, that say that, oh, he... And this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. So the question is, um, you're in this tense moment of they're bringing false witnesses against Christ and they're attacking him. They're impugning his character. They're saying he's a false prophet. And then... Jesus just takes it silently. He's sitting there silently, and then the high priest calls on him. I adjure you by the living God, tell us who you are. Tell us if you're the Christ. And he, and he quotes Daniel chapter 7, um, which is a really striking thing to quote, and it's important to note the reaction of the high priest in tearing his robes and saying this is blasphemy when Daniel chapter 7, it's as I, and I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked around, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire, and as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so you have this figure that comes to the heavenly throne room of God and receives all dominion and power, while at the same time that trope of coming on the clouds of heaven. If you look in the ancient Near East, that was actually a trope used for Baal. It was a divine trope. It was that it was Baal, the God, like God who ra rode, like his chariot was the clouds of heaven. And so there's a playing off of this pagan trope and applying it to Yahweh as there's this divine figure that is coming into the throne room of God. Does, does the name son of man also imply a human aspect there or what would you well it says there's one like a, one son, like of man. a son of man so, so okay there's it doesn't call him directly, directly the son back. of man okay. but jesus when he's asked who he is he quotes this passage and this is very much in reference to what we're discussing today the ascension of christ and his being seated at the right hand of god the father and uh one I've been talking for a bit, but one more passage. This is just Psalm 110. And the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn you will, he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek's, Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his, of his wrath, and he will execute judgment among the nations. So in all in that, you have so all these different prophecies in the Old Testament tying together where there's this promise of like the dominion of Christ, where even in that Psalm, Psalm 110, you see the ascension at the right hand, this plane of this divine figure who's coming to God. It's God, the Lord says to my Lord, and then the son of one like unto a son of man with this divine trope coming into the throne room of God. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then there will be the day of, the, of God's wrath in which his enemies are fully judged. And so there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's this great tension, right? One of the biggest tensions in the Christian mission between the Christian mission, sorry, uh, between... Um, my kingdom is at hand, right? And also the the kingdom of God is not of this world, right? It, it, it's one of the big... Um, already not yet. Yes, thing. right. Um, but at the same time, right, the idea that if, if Christ, you know, still walked among us, right, there wouldn't be any room, in a sense, for us to do what he wishes, right, for us to participate, right? It would be like, you know... Um, if Lincoln or, or Churchill, like this is a lesser example, of course, but like if they were still around, right? Like they would just be, you know, probably still in positions of high authority, right? Doing, doing their thing and, and no one, there wouldn't be room for successors or inheritors. Do you think um, they would have put in place term limits or what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I guess maybe, um, we don't have any term limits, I guess death, but, uh, that wouldn't really apply in that case. Um, but anyway, right. The idea that, um, it's more important to have each of us inherit um, and participate in Christ's mission, right? Um, in Christ's kingdom, in, in building his kingdom um, and clearing the way and, uh, for us, right? Setting both an example, but also now sending us out two by two. Um, well, I guess in this podcast booth, uh, three by three. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. And this idea that that's so important for us to do uh, and that could only really happen um with him both being taken up but also with the holy spirit coming down yeah this is all this is all good stuff i think you know the passage from daniel of all the passages in scripture to you know jump in without you know reading the rest of the chapter and having much context daniel is one of the more intense ones you know you have <laughs> the beasts and talking horns and things but you do have this prefiguration of christ the suffering servant, as we've seen, also being glorified as the um, divine, you know, uh, as this divine Messiah figure. So um, the ascension is, in a way, Christ's glorification. We see this, actually, I think, in the um, hymn about Christ in Philippians 2 as well, where it talks about Christ's humbling and then his um, glorification. Um, the, uh, yeah, he's exalted. He's given a name that is above every other name because of his obedience and um, his service to God um, in, in, and his humility. So this pattern of humbling and exalting that shows up throughout, throughout Scripture. We've said all this, and yet I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, for now, he's gone. Well, he's not, <laughs> he's not here. He's not in the same way that... He's not embodied. He's, that he was... So that's going to be my question. Is is he gone? Is his house he still around? You've, we've said something about a spirit. We'll talk. We'll have a whole episode on the Holy Spirit, if not two episodes. But uh, 
Yeah, well, you said he had to leave so that someone else might come. Say more about that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, sometimes we can tend to think of the ascension as abandonment, right? That Christ, because he is no longer embodied and, you know, visibly walking right next to us, except for, like, you know, extreme cases, um, he uh, he's no longer with us, right? We, we think of this ascension sometimes as, as this big farewell, right? Right, right. I mean, Matthew's version has that promise, I'm with you always to the end of the age, but it doesn't seem... And then seem, he leaves, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> Just as he's leaving, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really confusing to see, but we might, we might think of it more as a more intense form of intimacy, right? Because though Jesus moves, you know, in most of these uh accounts vertically like straight up right it's very obvious that he's not like just you know orbiting around the earth currently like a satellite um rather he's shifted into a into a sort of different plane a different kind of existence that is more connected to each of us in every moment than it was before um we might think of it as the military commander uh taking a higher vantage point so that he can survey all of the forces, right? All of the members uh, of the Church of God working and, and, and you know, issuing orders and, and that sort of thing from a better vantage point in which he can always be with us. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. And it's interesting that you use the language of greater intimacy because, let me put it this way, will this long-distance relationship work out or what's going on? <laughs> like, <laughs> like how, how does his absence as, you know, his embodied physical presence, how does his absence lead to greater intimacy? Um, I want to press on that point. I, I think we really, well, as, as I think about this topic, it just connects to so many different aspects of the creed, where uh, the ascension, it speaks to the nature of the resurrection. It speaks to the nature of Christ. Um, Christ's reign and just the prophecy, like, what is the Messiah? It speaks to um, the Holy Spirit and the and the Church Age and the nature the nature of that, and it speaks to um, the the final destination that we strive for. And uh, basically, I I think in this case we can't talk about it apart from just focusing on the Holy Spirit where I think that sort of greater intimacy is supposed to be a, a union in Christ that you see echoed again and again in especially the Pauline epistles through his spirit. And that even Paul talks about how to, when he's rebuking the Corinthians, I was in, I'm there in spirit and in spirit I am like I am crying out against this bad thing that you guys were doing. So there is even a sense in which we can have an intimate union with other believers who are currently living through the Spirit of God. And so, as and um, for a Bible study earlier today, we were reading some of the book of Acts, and as uh, I know, Christian Union has really been praying for revival and a work of the Spirit on this campus, that it really is this ongoing walk with Christ through the power of his spirit growing in sanctification and the fruit of the spirit of the joy and peace that is brought about about by the the promises of God it's just i don't know it's hard to just sum up but it's much easier to see it 
I think, than necessarily describe it when you see people who really are um, walking with that sort of intimacy with Christ brought about right. by his spirit. Right. And maybe to bring it into other terms as well, sometimes, especially I suppose to people who are um, not uh, you know, as familiar with the church or didn't uh, grow up religiously minded, when you hear um, Christians say things, oh, but it's true in a spiritual sense, then you start to be a little bit... Um, roll your eyes a little. Yeah, roll your eyes a little bit. What, what's the like, spirit, right? I think Christians can do that too. Yeah, Christ- like, well, <laughs> what's the catch here? Yeah, what's the catch? Like, yeah. Oh, it's spiritual. It's just what yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, it's spiritual. It's like well, you wouldn't understand. But uh, <laughs> I think what's going on when Scripture talks about the Spirit of God, um, first of all, we're talking about a uh, real person. We'll get to that third person of the Trinity. That's uh, that's that'll be the topic of another episode and what the Spirit does specifically. But with relation to this long-distance relationship that is, you know, the church's relationship to Christ. The Spirit is, in a sense, the mind of Christ. It facilitates that union. I don't know how I would put it. Um, uh, in John, Christ talks about how this Spirit, this comforter, this paraclete, is like the a Greek Greek version of the word. Interestingly, that word is applied to Christ elsewhere. So there's that unity of mission, that kind of helper, that kind of comforter, that Christ and the Spirit share, will help us um, know the mind of Christ in a sense. Will remind us of the things Christ has said, and will um, basically facilitate that promise Christ makes. I've no longer called you servants. I've called you friends because I've told you, you know, what I'm what I'm going to do. And uh, I've given you this kind of access into um, my thoughts and the thoughts of my father. So there's this kind of unity going on there. I'm reminded also of verses where um, Paul talks about the power that is at work in you is the same power that rose Christ from the dead. Elsewhere, the spirit is described as raising Christ from the dead. So when we say the spirit of of um, Christ, when we talk about the spiritual union, um, it's not just trying to blow smoke. It's saying that there is this real kind of unity of intention, this unity of personhood, so to speak, shared between Christ and between his church. Um, I'll actually just read a couple of verses from John uh, because we were referencing them. It's always nice to actually get the inspired wording. Uh, let's see. There's another um, root word spirit there, right? I'm sure. Inspired, right? <laughs> From, you know, to breathe in, basically. Yes, yeah. Numa. Yeah. Uh, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper would not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I say that he will take that what is mine and declare it to you. And there, well, you could just keep on going and going. There's 
uh, in that discourse, but that sort of conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. Because you have to remember, when, in Christ's life, it's not like he had that many followers. He performed great miracles. He awed, he, gave, he, he brought awe and wonder to many of the Jews and the Samaritans, seeing who is, who is this man? How, how is he speaking in such ways? How does, in what power does he do these things? But even you see at the beginning, you see at the beginning of Acts some of the miracles that they're doing in the power of the Holy Spirit, and um, you have thousands joining day by day. And then even there, there's like a level of hardening. The miracles don't always cut it. The miracles don't always convince people. Um, but if you look at the church today and the way the Holy Spirit has guided um, God's people around the entire world, like the the Holy Spirit truly is a presence and a force to be reckoned with and who has been, been with us in power. Like, if you were going to look at the lives of the saints, if you're going to look at the lives of those who've truly served God and the powerful movements of God in various points in history, the Holy Spirit is not a force to be underestimated and not a force to... He is not a person to be devalued. <laughs> Okay, great. So we've talked about the spirit, the spiritual union with Christ, that in that sense, he, he's still present. Human beings are not just um, spirit, though. And we, I mean, this is, we could get into a big discussion about uh, the relationship between spirit and body. But my question is, is, is the language of the body of Christ, though, completely gone? Is his only ongoing presence a spiritual one? Where do we see the language of the body of Christ recur? Is there still the body of Christ um, here, here on earth, in some sense? Um, <laughs> Given I'm a little softball. Right? Yeah, you know, I... I, I the Actually, question is, no, this, 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 I, I'm thinking of this in a few different ways. I, I know, okay, I know, but okay. I just, it's the Eucharist, I have to talk about it. Like You're, you're beating me over the head here, Artish here. Um, so I'll try not to, um, to talk for too long. Right, uh, right. Um, we, we'll, we will talk more about the sacraments, I think, right. coming up. And, and yes. cut me off if I get a little too heretical. But, um, <laughs> I guess maybe that's not the wrong word. But, um... We'll we'll really deal with you if you get too heretical. <laughs> Watch oh, your man. back. <laughs> I always felt a little nervous in here. No, um, um, those big red balloons. Who knows what you could do with them? Um, but anyway, right. So this 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 is definitely extremely important um, in Catholic theology, right? The importance of the embodiment of Christ um, still staying with us, right? Um, the idea that every day you can encounter uh, and gnaw on his flesh, right? Um, and, and in that way... Gnaw uh, is an interesting word. But well, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the actual word yeah. in John 6. Wow, uh, okay. The Greek is, is literally to gnaw on I his like flesh. I should know that, given my uh. classics background. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I only know it for slight apologetical and semi-spirit... I mean, not semi... Uh, uh, meditative you know, purposes. But, but regardless, um, that's definitely an important part of uh, Catholic theology. Um, but, you know, to come at it more from, from, from what the perspective that Ardashir was getting at, right, the body of Christ, both um, as each other, right, as ourselves, right? And this is also connected in Catholic theology in the Eucharist, where we, it's this interesting um, dynamism of both receiving Christ, but also uh, us, you know, eventually all being taken up as one with Christ, right? And ourselves as the body of Christ. And then also in a weird way, consuming um, 
every, you know, the body of Christ in, in both ways, um, as one and, and intricately intertwined in a mystical, um, spiritual way. But regardless, right, the body of Christ as each other and, and how we see each other, um, in that way. And, and that's so important, right? The way in which we walk with each other, the way in which, uh, we see Christ in the other, right? We see this over and over in Genesis, right? Image of man, right? In, in each other. Um, and if we can't really see the image of Christ in each other, uh, then even if Christ walked among us, how much of a difference would it make? Yeah, yeah. I think that's good. That last point was um, especially... Oh, not the, not the first point. No, actually, the first no, point Jeffrey, is... Yeah. part was terrible. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I think... And we'll talk about this more definitely, but I think the stance that I'm coming to, and I think many Protestants might hold, is the disagreement is less about, uh, on, on the Eucharist, is less about the presence of Christ in it as to, you know, the manner of that presence, or, in a, so to speak, the specific language of transubstantiation, which is um, Catholic uh, Catholic belief. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Most Protestants historically have held to the presence of Christ in partaking in the Lord's Supper, but they would quibble with, the formulation that was dogmatized, I believe in Lateran one, it might be a different one in the middle ages. So, uh, yeah, but so most, I actually just bringing up the Lord's supper. I didn't expect that we would get to the sacraments on the topic of Christ's ascension. Yeah. You know, I didn't see that coming. uh, I didn't see that coming. Um, (laughs) Uh, we're playing it fast and loose. Right. Uh, I think I th- the th- the way the sacraments fit in is rather I was trying to say you know um, that I think the language of Christ's body as the as the church. Well, yeah, I, I'm. Just, I mean, I'm, they're they're intimately connected, right? right? Like, how many times have we seen Christ as the groom and and the church as the bridesmaid throughout Scripture? Like, it, it's right there, um, over and over, right? And and what do we see in in Ephesians, right? When when Paul talks about how husband and wives treat each other, right? The the husband gives up his body and treats the wife as his own body because they are so one. And right? the two will become one flesh. Exactly. There's a union between the and, two. Right? And think body about how much more how much more powerful that is with Christ, right? We are supposed to be one with Christ, right? That's that's the whole thing. So intimately united with him that he gives up his body, right, as Paul talks about, but also that we see in each other, right, this intimate union. That's great. I think this is a good direction because speaking of sacraments, I mean, let's talk about matrimony, I guess. But you know, well, yeah, we can, we can. I, I'm throwing the matrimony. Here, all throwing, of us, all of us, resident count. matrimony experts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we all really yeah. know about that. I I think we've learned in no. my middle ages class that became yeah. a sacrament officially. In right. The, the that was another. That was another little softball. But yeah. But um. Uh, but yeah, I think. It's very interesting then that, I mean, I was semi-joking when I described this as a sort of long-distance relationship situation, but in a sense it is there, and we have this language of kind of waiting for the groom, which uh, is used in scripture. And this language of marriage, I think, is going to be really, really helpful in understanding... The wedding feast of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb is what's expected. Okay, so let's think of it this way, because uh, the Bible invites us to think of the relationship between Christ and the church this way. It would be very interesting, actually, to think that sometimes we say, oh, to understand marriage, we need to understand Christ and the church. But, you know, on the other hand, to understand Christ and the church better, we we need a solid understanding of marriage. So if we picture a really ideal marriage, ideally, say the husband's away, the wife would be able to... um, I don't know, um, speak for him in some sense, or rather 
not no no <laughs> but um i don't know no 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 um what i'm trying to say is that yeah there's some uh internecine rivalries springing up but um what i'm trying to say is that in some sense if they're to be considered one, then when one is absent, one can stand in, so to speak, for the other. One can act. You might think of this in know, terms of you know, overseeing a business, maybe, or something You know like them that. well enough. You, right. At least ideally, if you know them well enough, you will know what they would think about certain situations. And so if we are to imitate the mind of Christ as Christians, to dwell on his word, to try to cultivate um, love in our lives, that we would really your mind to Christ or do you mean you're like somehow mystically and the line like what's going on the line isn't always so clear too um but but also like to add on to the, the body of Christ and and the church as well right I mean that's um right Christ's prayer in in the garden right about his body and you know about us right it's just so beautiful but most importantly right like um is the idea the most defining trait of the body of Christ is its unity, its oneness, right? It's and, and him going back to the Father is, is sort of part of that, right? The unity of the Trinity. Um, a lot of people use marriage as uh, an image of the Trinity in the in the the love of a of a husband and his wife is so filling and so beautiful that it overflows into a into the creation of a third person um or the the beginning of a third person rather that's important uh difference but but similarly um that is a mere um very like under a uh limited uh, uh, image of of how the trinity works right the love between the father and the son so intimate so powerful that it it becomes a whole person right not to say that one you know existed before the other or something like that but but along those lines but also in the body of christ right the idea that they might be one as the trinity is one right and what does that look like that looks like uh every christian right regardless of denomination or particular theologies right there's all sorts of of, of quibbles that that we have right and that sort of thing but the importance of the oneness right and also that is testimony to the world right? Yes. When people look at Christians, right? What do they see? It, you know, if they see just a bunch of infighting, right? Which, which it, is what they have often seen. Yes, right. <laughs> throughout history. I mean, you know, there's, a, there's Through, been yeah, a lot of infighting. All the way back to the early church. Right. People were asking like John Chrysostom's of how, like, what sect do I join? You know, yeah. All these people are bickering over the nature of Christ. And and that's part of the, the mission, too, of this podcast and, and this initiative, right? Um, and so that particular element is super important. Could I, could I note one thing? Because this nature of being one with God and being one with Christ and being one with one another, it's important to note, because a lot of different religions have this sort of language in yeah. certain ways of like, oh, becoming Buddhism, one. Right, yeah. Becoming one with God. Or I recently for a class was reading some Muslim Sufi literature of, where it's very much this like trying to be swallowed up by the infinite oneness of God and Allah. And I think a drop it, in the ocean. Yes, yeah, a drop in the ocean. It and I think it's important to notice the very strong difference between that thinking 
and what we see here of mm-hmm. what is being meant by being one with Christ and being one with one another, or even the sort of one union that's in the Trinity itself, where there are, mm-hmm. there's a perfect unity within in the Trinity, three relations. And then, but like if you look at the husband and wife, there's a unity that still maintains difference. Mm-hmm. A distinct person. Yeah, there still maintains the problem distinct, of the many and yes, the one. Yes, if anything, the union is beautiful in many ways because of the difference. Because, and I think that relation of creator and creature is important to maintain, where we're not blurring it into some sort of mystical pantheism, mm-hmm. where I think somebody, if they're, somebody is more familiar with those traditions, they might listen to us and think, oh, they're just saying very similar stuff. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, mm-hmm. we're not actually saying that. We're still very much distinct creatures um, that are maintaining our creatureliness, but being perfected in the image and that's why the body is such a good image for that, right? Yes. Paul talks about, you know, different people being you yes. know, feet and, and hands. and There's a differentiation and still a, a cohesiveness and a unif- unity of purpose and, and mm-hmm. all that uh, with Christ as our head. And we don't become Christ. We, we become one with Christ. We, right. We are in union with Christ. The church is his bride, but the, the bride and the groom have different roles. They, they're not, and I think this, you could go other directions for why this is so important for marriage is to, and how it actually models Christ in the church. Yeah, mm-hmm. There's such an abundance, I think, of, uh, of images mm-hmm. used here. Uh, there's the image of body, there's the image of marriage. These are used throughout scripture, just trying to convey that sense of unity in, in the groom's absence. I guess with this question of the uh, ascension, I mean, the question does come up, what is Christ doing right now? Scripture does talk about it in some degree. You know, he's actively ruling. He's, yes. uh, it speaks of it also in terms of rest. He's finished his work. He declares it is finished. And uh, there's this sense of exaltation, of finishedness, of rest. A completion, yet still waiting for the final Right, right. The final return. You know, with with that pattern of work, then rest, we might even think of the Genesis creation account and a sort of recreation or the inauguration of the new created order, which is another, um, uh, which is language that the New Testament also applies to, to the kingdom Christ inaugurates. But I wonder if to some extent the focus of scripture is less on, you know, what is Christ doing right now? Does he need to be doing something? Does time work the same way in heaven as it does here? And, you know, there's, there's all these questions we could broach, but when the disciples ask, you know, um, uh, aren't you going to inaugurate the kingdom now? Christ's response is to say that's, that's in God's hands, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not for you to... It's not for you to know. But what is given to us is a command uh, which he gives to them to, you know, uh, spread the gospel, make disciples of all nations. Um, what is given to us, in a sense, is that daily task of now that we have been given Christ's model, his uh, life and his death and his resurrection, uh, the church and individual Christians are then called to imitate that work in a sense to, I wonder if it's too much to use the language of becoming little Christs, in a sense, in, in taking up our cross, in sacrificial love, and in, you know, empowered by the Spirit of God, doing the work of Christ um, wherever we are called to go. I think, yeah, you can, you can go take that sort of imagery all sorts of directions. And when you see 
the, like you said, it's not really for us to know. And Christ himself says that. Um, And we also touched on that in our podcast on the resurrection, where there is this sort of, there is a mystery to what ultimately we will experience when the mortal is swallowed up in life, when the the corruptible is swallowed up by the incorruptible. We, by the the very nature of us living in a corruptible world under the curse of death, we cannot, we don't have any sort of frame of reference for what it would mean to not have that. So we need to have humility. And I just, I wouldn't want to speculate too much. What exactly does it mean for Christ to be seated the right hand of God in his resurrected body? Because I also, I, I would think he is embodied to an extent, like, but sort of like we see with Paul, he refers to Christ as having a spiritual body. Yet also, you see that Christ's body is very much still a body. And it's, I think it's mysterious and it's not worth speculating too much about. Or like, it's worthy pondering, but I I think it's definitely worth approaching it with humility um, as to our actual just plain limitations in this current life of understanding what those promises mean. Yeah, right, right. I mean, it it is a call to humility. It is a call to, again, as I said, action. When, When Paul calls us in Colossians to set our minds on things above where Christ is, where Christ is with God, that is so that our mindset and our actions in this life will be, um, you know, more like, more like Christ's. And I think that's an important point. Um, Jesus tells us, uh, gives us a few parables of where the master of the house will go away. And uh, he is coming back, and we'll talk about that. But uh, in the meantime, um, the expectation is for us to, so to speak, keep the lights on, keep things in order, and uh, do his work while he is away. Man, weird. We're just wedding feast, uh, lights on. We're just teeing up for the for the foolish virgin's parable, right? right? Yeah. Like uh, post ascension too, you know. So I guess that's that's really the call, the mission, right? You know, Christ has ascended; his embodiment, not so obvious, right? Still with us. In fact, perhaps super with us, um, sending his very spirit to to join us in the spiritual union. But what will we do with that spirit? Will we be found? at the gates awaiting, you know, the bridegroom's arrival with our lamps full, or will we be there with them empty? Precisely. Um, And here I might uh, be speculating a little bit, so correct me if I say something that's off, but I do wonder if it's in that sense that we can say that uh, there is something more powerful, better, not better, better, but that, that... Something happened when Christ left that would not have happened if he were still here. In the sense that the incarnation, uh, you know, not to speak of putting limits on God, but the incarnation was God putting limits on himself. There have actually been very serious theological conversations on, uh, on this exact topic across the Reformed, Catholic, Lutheran traditions. And so I, I'd want to be cautious to really speak to, I, for one, I, I just don't know <laughs> that much about it. And especially when it comes to Christology, people freak out if you say something. It's serious, so it, people want, uh, you want to be cautious. But as far as Christ's um, human nature, pe- I know people 
to speak about the sort of ultimate glorification that would have happened that happened at the time of his ascension, um, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, where there's just this level of glory and perfection of Christ's human nature that would be unparalleled and unprecedented, where you even see in the description of Christ's childhood how he, he grew in stature and wisdom, that there's this process of Christ, his human, like Christ was, in, his, in being fully man, was growing and maturing, even, and that his ascension and glorification is just that ultimate perfection of a, a man who is, has more perfect union with God than, than anything conceivable. Right. Something we're called to aspire to and to, to hope for. Mm -hmm. um, he is the first fruits. And uh, if, if we, we had we Nate here, yeah. he could talk about theosis. Theosis, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was Our, thinking about that in the natural respiration of the incarnation and the ascension, right? That God became man. Um, that man might become God, so to speak. Um, but hopefully Jesus didn't grow too tall in stature. Um, yeah, there are some people who say he's 5'5". Five five, and uh, <laughs> as a, as a you know, man of that kind of stature myself. <laughs> you can see eye to eye with the, with the Messiah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, the rest of you guys are looking yeah. down on him. How I do think, you feel? Yeah. There, that, that theology of theosis is, is interesting. Um, I know some of it's drawn from the Petrine epistles and forget, was that first or second Peter? We're partaking in the divine nature. Uh, I forget. But um, I, I also think that sort of phrase, man, um, God became man so man could become God. Uh, I, I would, with like hesitation, agree with that and that the sense of ultimate glorification and union with Christ and the final resurrection body, like that is a sort of divine glory where you can talk about this. Like, that, that's a way that the Old Testament talks about the sons of God, like the archangels. So we very much, like the final glory that we can aspire to is this level that's very divine and like above what we're, it's not that mere resuscitation, it's, but I, I'm not so sure if we'll be specific become being absorbed into the Trinity or whatever. Right, but, but <laughs> yeah, that's that's um, you know the the point here is that it's beyond what we can imagine in this you know story of this long distance relationship. The groom is coming back for his church to uh, sweep her off her feet, so to speak, and uh, yeah, uh, we've covered a lot. Um, strayed you know perhaps from the specific no i don't think we have i think we've talked necessarily about the questions you know what where is he what is he doing and what do we do in the meantime and i think those are important questions to uh address any any final thoughts from you guys i mean it really just shows you how much of a linchpin of an event the ascension is right? mm -hmm, absolutely um, and how much more perhaps reverence and credit we should give it um just in Absolutely. Practice. Right, right. To close us out, and in thinking of the uh, ongoing presence of Christ, even in his absence, so to speak, I did want to read, this is from uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, a Jesuit poet from the 19th, 19th century, from his poem, As Kingfishers Catch Fire. And he ends with, with this line that, these lines that came to mind. Um, For Christ plays in 10,000 places, 
lovely in, in, in limbs and lovely in eyes not his to the Father through the features of men's faces. So this idea of Christ continually continuing to be at work through his church, through the thousand faces of his church, is something that I think is inspiring and that you know can drive us forward as uh, as members of that church. So, um, yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks <laughs> thank for you, having thank me. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.